You know what's wrong? Terribly wrong. Friday's headline in our Tulsa world says it all. Oklahoma leads nation in deepest cuts to school funding for the third straight year. I'm speechless. It's wrong. The status of educational funding, it's not about swollen or shrunken government. This tragic moment is about mistaken priorities. As a state, we have the resources to provide dynamic public education for all children. What we don't have is political will. I'm angry, angry that resources are going to too many other places. I'm afraid. I fear for the future of this state. Draining educational resources pulls the plug on the vitality of our region. The more educated our children who become parents and workers, the more sophisticated we as a state become. All those issues that we hold dear, the linchpin, the, the keystone is education. If you care about the environment, we need people who understand the complexities of science and social science. If you believe in health care, we have to understand what it means for someone to be healthy and what a system is that supports that health. And I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. I feel helpless seeing this train wreck happen under my watch as a citizen. I say I'm born and bred in Oklahoma, but there are so many times I would like to say, no, I'm, I'm not from here, but I am. Unitarian Universalism as a religious denomination is committed to education, committed to ideas, we pioneered Sunday school. We believe children should have accurate facts in all areas of life. We believe religious experiences belong side by side with science and philosophy and the arts. They are not disparate. Our church isn't standing idly by. We're committed to being a partner in education with Tulsa Public Schools. This year we changed our partnership and the outreach committee recommended after some research that we adopt MacArthur Elementary School. And if you don't know about MacArthur, it's at 21st and Memorial, around that area. It's tucked into a neighborhood. But it's a school with 90% of the students on free or reduced lunch. 90%. And they're racially diverse. About a third of them are Hispanic and another third are African American. A sixth are white and the remaining are Native American and Asian Pacific Islander. A quarter of their students, no matter race or origin, do not speak English as their first language. So as we develop a relationship with the principal, 
and the teachers and the families. We're going to learn over time how we can be even more supportive. At the moment, what we're doing is giving our time and resources, volunteering as homework tutors and reading partners, filling backpacks on Fridays with healthy snacks. Healthy snacks. Please donate healthy snacks. Because some of them go home on the weekends without that free lunch. We're going to help out with their fall festival. And we need people to sign up to be reading partners. I'm going to sign up as a reading partner. So I ask you to join me. If you work, tell your workplace that you want to be a reading partner and that you might be a little late for work. Oh, congregation, I might be a little late for work, just letting you know. (laughs) So all of these opportunities are going to improve the quality of life at MacArthur. We support the staff and the students in the present moment. And it's a worthy volunteer and charitable effort. But, unfortunately, except... It's not going to have any effect on the future of education and the funding and the fact that we've dropped funding for the third year in a row. It won't disrupt that appalling underfunding of education. It won't create political will to change this complex chain of monies and policies and systems. So we're going to have to do both and. Supporting MacArthur is one fabulous thing, but that's not enough. We have to address the civic decline, civic decline that enables our system to literally rob our public schools, which robs our children and robs our state and city's future. I'm angry. I really am. I am so angry. I named and planned today's sermon with the title Cold Anger, which is the title of a book about staying angry but using it to be effective. I don't know about you, but I can only stay white-hot angry for a limited period of time, and then I burn out, flame out like a flame. But cold anger is what I'm aiming for, something that is thoughtful and calculated and, most importantly, sustainable. I had called this title, I have to pick titles way in advance, because our Tulsa Sponsoring Committee was going to have this founding convention November 6th, except that convention got postponed. And all of us who'd been working on it, connected with that community, felt like our balloon had sprung a leak and now was whizzing around the room deflated. We'd been building this momentum and now we weren't having a founding convention. And some of us have thought, okay, well, that was a nice effort. We tried. So I've had to look carefully at my own swirling rainbow of changing feelings, my first reaction was to agree, yeah, we're not ready to go public. And I helped make that decision even 
but I've had to step back and look at my white-hot anger and white-hot excitement and go, wait, I'm here for the long haul. And I had to look at what we have done well. We have 15 member institutions. And we have created a groundswell of people willing to work with us, but we haven't put all the pieces together. We've been trying to do too much with too little, and we've made mistakes. So I've, ha- I've looked into all those community organizing efforts that we all know about and go, well, when have they made mistakes? And when have they moved forward and then gone, no, that's not quite right, and stepped back? And the arc that we learn about Martin Luther King or it was messy, messy work. Making change in our community is messy. It's, it's well... I've, I've had to ask, should hope keep devoting time and energy? And I've had to think about, so what makes something succeed? And it's cold anger, anger that keeps you there, that allows you to step back when you need a breath and step forward. And I've had to think about the process. I firmly believe in this process of creating a growing number of people who are willing to work together. And I'm certain it's essential. I don't know of any other models that work quite this way. First of all, it's subversive work. Making change in our community and in ourselves, and in our nation, is subversive work. And I'm drawn to it because it's about disrupting existing structures. And our religious community is founded upon this subversive, heretical spirit. Unlike marches and demonstrations, which are shows of power by scores of people, they're often too loosely organized to make real, sustained change. I was trying to remember the organization that sprung up in cities. I couldn't even remember the name. They were meeting in city parks because of economic disparity. I couldn't remember it this morning. I couldn't Google it because I couldn't think of it. (laughs) Do you know what movement I'm talking about? Pardon? 99% was one. Occupy. Occupy. I had already forgotten. It was short-lived. They were too loosely organized. They didn't have staying power. What a demonstration does, it's a powerful reminder that you're not alone in a fight. And it's it's very uplifting. It can be energizing, but the effects are short-lived. Demonstrations are like eating donuts. Secret hidden pleasure. They're a sugar rush. Fine every once in a while. But there's always a crash afterwards. The build-up and let-down cycles become exhausting. So the advocacy work we do is always wearing. 
So to be effective, we have to find ways that are sustaining, that build upon lasting tools. You know, I am aware there have been dozens of marches on our state capitol condemning education funding and policies. I've been to one. But here we are, a third straight year cutting funding. We don't use this word often, but it's sinful that this is where we are. And what we need is a continuous network built to withstand disappointment. So I've had to look. This is about how do you respond to disappointment? What do you do when things you've worked so hard and they don't work out the way you want? And what the community organizing tools teach me is that's not when you quit. That's when you go, oh, here's what we've done so far. And remember, we want everything to be linear and to look like a graph and for progress to be this way. As Unitarian Universalists in our history, we used to believe that human progress was always moving upwards. And it's not. So how do we use our intelligence and our hearts to withstand all the things that are going to be roadblocks. There will always be roadblocks. That's just the nature of... Every parent knows this. You think, oh, I'm going to be a parent. It's so lovely. It's going to be like this. And no, it's not. It's like this. And you change your goals. My child's going to be a doctor, a president, a CEO. Well, I'm just going to make sure they're alive. I'm just going to make sure I can take a shower and that they are thinking, compassionate human beings. The push against changing a system as deeply entrenched as, and I'm just using our education system as an example, is we realize how it's all entangled with so many other things. There are layers. So you have to set up a group of people who are willing to bring on new voices and new people. And when you run into a roadblock, go, we're either going to jump over it, we're going to unbuild it, or we're going to walk around it. A HOPE member told me a story about payday lending. And a community leader worked really hard to change policies in the legislature got legislation passed, only to see it dismantled. That's going to happen. That's the nature of this work. We may be able to work and get education funding changed, but we're going to have to keep pushing because there will be another roadblock. That's just how it works. So how do you keep yourself propped up when you're discouraged? And I've had to notice in myself the times when I'm discouraged, and my first response is to flee. Let's just get out of this. Let's stop. And to prop myself up, and to prop each other up, what sets community organizing apart from other ways of making change is it's built on relationships because that's what's sustaining. We don't pick issues first. I've started talking about an issue, but we always build it on 
people's stories and what's foremost in their minds. What makes them angry? What affects their lives? I've been um, thinking a lot about what's going to happen after this presidential election. And we have so many relationships to rebuild because we've become this divided nation. So how are we going to reach across all those people who voted differently from you and had a completely different view of what the nation might look like or what the nation might need? Because after November 8th, we still have to be in relationship with each other. So I'm looking for an institution that's going to help me figure out how to keep my hand out. And to do that, I have to look at myself. What makes me go, I can't work with you, even though you're in office and... We are a community that's sure of ourselves. We're smart. We often know what's right. But the third part of community organizing, the model that I think we should stick with, is it it does involve self-critiquing. In the ideal world, before each meeting, we set the agenda and focus, and then afterwards we go, how did it go? And the process happens whether it's one-on-one or a large public action, and part of that is you're never alone. So I've experienced this self-critique many times. This summer, did I tell you this, that I met with Kathy Taylor on our behalf just to get her take? She's the former mayor of Tulsa, just to get her take on the city. And now that she's no longer elected but has a foundation and is still doing a lot of work, what do you see is going, going on with our city? And the group of us meeting with her, we planned what we were going to meet. I was going to lead the meeting. I was going to focus it. I got in there, and we started talking about a bunch of other stuff, and I didn't really focus the meeting. And there was an opportunity afterwards to go, huh, what was that about, that you didn't do what you said you were going to do, which is what this work is about, and what our church work is about is holding each other accountable. So I said I was going to do one thing, and I didn't. How can I do better? How can I have a meeting and keep it focused and interrupt someone who I don't really know and say, we're here to meet you for this? And this willingness to evaluate is part of what makes the work religious, why we as a religious institution are involved because we have to look at the traditions within our own Unitarian Universalism that makes changing ourselves and changing the world possible. And I I think we, uh, we Unitarian Universalists have showed up more in these meetings than any other tradition, and there's a reason for that. And that's because we, as a congregation, already embody different faiths and ideas, and we continue to work sitting next to someone who may completely have a different view of what is most vital in 
the world. You may have a different view of before life and after life and God and not God. So we're already the proving ground for what it means to work across ideas that limit us until we bump up against the ones that we don't see. So we have a a team of people at Hope who are working on this. Other churches are not as far along as we are, so I want to tell you a story about Church of the Resurrection. They're a church, uh, a Catholic church, and their core team had been strong and then fallen away, and they decided, we're going to do something. So what they did, they're they're in a neighborhood, um, how to describe, kind of near St. Francis, uh, 51st and Yale. And they realized uh, they'd like to get out and register people to vote. And to do that, they thought, well, we want to get out into the neighborhood. So they started walking behind, surrounding the, the churches in the middle of, um, of the block. So they're not on a major thoroughfare. And they are surrounded by apartments. And they thought, well, we'll go out and knock on doors and try and register people and get to know our neighbors. They did this. This is just last week they started doing this. And people were thrilled and told them stories of uh, what their life is like in, in the neighborhood of the church. And they found out that the neighbors are struggling with gangs. And there's actually one woman who sets aside one part of her monthly income to buy food that she sets out for the gang members, hoping that they'll protect her by feeding them. They talked about the problems with a park they have across the street. They complained about, you know, there's a beautiful new family Y. The Y there has been revamped. But what's happened is they've been priced out of their neighborhood Y. They started looking up, uh, they, in talking about gangs and some of the crime problems, um, this core team at Church of the Re- Resurrection said, well, we'd be happy to help you look up codes for the apartments and who owns the apartment. And they have since had a meeting at Church of the Resurrection and neighbors came. And they, of course, what do you do when you have a neighbor over? They had a meal and talked and have now made additional plans to look into issues, to get to know each other to continue to register voters. I know it's a little past time now, but... So we have a similar team, and they've started doing things like looking into aging. One of, we had house meetings, and one of the issues that came up over and over again were issues of aging, which are issues of transportation and health care and housing. So we're, we have a small group that's begun just to look into that what are some of the issues and there's a team at All Souls and the two may connect we have a group that's looking and meeting city councilors to get to know what, what do they see in our city none of this is terribly sexy but on the other hand it's incredibly exciting I really appreciate the um, 10 o'clock forum because it got me thinking about who my 
legislators are in a way that was not that discouraging. I'm here, I, I disagree with them, but I was with a group of people who knew, knew different things than what I knew. So my point is, I admire that we were willing to step back and not have our founding convention. And to say that publicly, we're not ready. But we're still going to meet and have an event on November 6th. And I invite every single person here because what we're going to do is look at each other in the mirror where there will be people from 15 other institutions that look just like us except they don't look just like us. Who have similar problems and who have different problems. We're going to listen with open hearts. People are going to tell their stories. Some of us will tell our stories of what it means to live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's a Sunday afternoon. It's two days before the election, so if you're discouraged, I tell you this will be energizing to know that you are not alone. And it's going to be in a different part of town. It will be in the Kendall Whittier area near First and Lewis. I invite every single person here. We'll have free child care here at Hope. But bring your teenagers. There'll be a chance to see what it looks like when people take charge of the political process and are willing to stay in it for the long haul and make mistakes and say they're sorry but not let it be the end. May it be so.